The master created humans first as the lowest type, most easily formed. Gradually, he replaced them by robots, the next higher step. And finally, he created me, to take the place of the last humans. Now, I began this episode in such grandiose style with that quote from Isaac Asimov's I, Robot, his series of books about the interactions of humans, robots, and morality. And that is because, although Asimov was writing in the 1950s, his sci-fi predictions have become art reality. Robots are here, and they are taking your jobs, they are driving your cars soon, and they are affecting the ways in which you consume every bit of culture via the algorithms that tell you what you might like to listen to next on Spotify, read or even wear in some cases based on information that you've previously fed into the system. I'm Harriet Fitch-Little and welcome to Think Aloud where you'll hear from the people shaping art and culture today. Together we'll consider new ideas and approach old ones from new angles to hopefully cast some light on the most exciting things happening right now in the arts. In this episode, we welcome our overlords to the Southbank Centre, or rather, their creators. Which one is Frankenstein and which one is the monster? I can never remember. We'll be hearing from Thomas Rickovet, who's bringing Move 37, his AI-inflected performance about Go, one of the oldest and most complicated games in the world, to the Southbank Centre in March. And we'll also be hearing from Patrick Tresset, the man who's roped in robots to do his drawings for him. To save me from the existential angst of being surrounded by inanimate and yet somehow thinking machines, I've roped in a very human guest with me, Rupert Thompson, performance and dance programmer at Southbank Centre. Rupert, welcome. Let's read the room quickly. Artificial intelligence, good, bad, terrible, go. <laughs> that's, that's quite the question. Good morning. Um, good morning. I would say if you are coming at this from the point of view of humanity, then artificial intelligence may well be a very bad thing indeed. But if we're coming from the point of view of a kind of objective morality, what's best for the universe, I think it may well be the case that artificial intelligence overtakes us, knows better than we do what's right and wrong and how to arrange things in a civilised manner. So, yeah, I'm feeling human this morning, so let's say it's a bad thing. How about yourself? I don't think I've ever felt like its morality could be better than humans. I mean... Obviously, what we're mainly going to be talking about today is art. But if you think about self-driving cars, one of the big questions there is, you know, how can these cars replicate humans' way of responding to the kind of um, dilemma of who you choose to kill? The idea that machines could make those decisions better is quite a bold claim. In my personal life, I think I'm just incredibly lazy and like everyone else just like slowly succumb to the creep of AI. I got an Alexa for Christmas, which I didn't particularly want, but installed it to be polite to the person who bought it for me. And then as with everything in life, once it's there, it's there. And now she wakes me up every morning. (laughs) (laughs) My new friend, uh, she sang happy birthday to me recently. Um, in, In terms of art, I've yet to see any art that I find like super exciting when it comes to AI, but maybe that will change over the course of our conversation. My name is uh, Thomas Rikewaert. I'm a Belgian uh, theatre director and an actor, and I got uh, totally uh, intrigued by Move 37. In March 2016, there was a game organised, a game of Go, 
between the world champion of Go, the South Korean Lee Sedol, and AlphaGo, which is a deep neural network developed by uh, DeepMind, an artificial intelligence company based here in London and purchased by Google. The game of Go is the, the oldest board game in the world. They say it's the most complex game man ever made because the possible legal moves you can make in a board game vastly exceeds the number of atoms in the universe. Computative power is useless. Its intuition and creativity are much more important. And that's why this game of Go has long been considered as the holy grail of artificial intelligence because yeah, creativity and uh, intuition are considered as exclusively human traits. Moreover, because of the high amount of possible positions you can make, even if you would run all the computers in the world for a million of years, that wouldn't be enough computation power to look through all the possible moves. Before this game was organized, nobody thought a computer could beat uh, the human. Even the most optimistic AI engineers thought it was impossible. But this company DeepMind organized this game against the world champion and AlphaGo beat Lee Sedol 4-1, which sent a, a shockwave not only through the game community but also through the scientific community. Interesting. So uh, AlphaGo played this move, which I want to hear more about in a second, but uh, Lee has left the room. He left the room after that He left that the room move. after that move. Uh-huh. It's a very surprising it's move. It's a surprising move. Um, I wasn't expecting that. Um, I don't really know if it's a good or bad move at this point. Um, I would ex usually white would be just happy to play here. Black probably is thinking of uh, doing... There's one specific move, like the 37 move in the second so game, which AlphaGo made, the commentators triple take. They say that's, that's not a human move. A human would never play this move. And Lee Sedol, when this move is being played, Lee Sedol, he leaves the room. He just gets up and he, gets, he goes out. He goes out to smoke a cigarette. That's <laughs> what humans do when they're confused. And he will later call it a move of genius and great beauty. I was intrigued and I, I kind of fell in love with it in a way. That's how every project starts. You just get this kind of feeling of, okay, I want to I wanna, I wanna start working on this. I started reading about it. I got in contact with the people from DeepMind. I started talking about it also with uh, the cosmologist, the uh, physicist uh, Thomas Hertog, which is actually a scientist who I've been I had been working with 10 years ago already and who was really interested in, in uh, outreach, scientific outreach. And he was also intrigued by this Move 37 because yeah, he gave a lecture called Science and Magic and he, he kind of focused on Move 37 there where in a sense that something's happening that is so weird and unfathomable that in a way it goes beyond science. So you're here because you were responsible for commissioning Move 37 for the South Bank Centre. And we're going to go to Thomas for a full description of what the performance is uh, shortly. But perhaps we could begin by you kind of explaining in general terms why it was that you wanted to introduce... Actually, I don't know if this is the first kind of AI experiment at the South Bank Centre, but I'm interested in, yeah, why did you want to bring an AI-infused performance to the building? Here at Southbank Centre, we're very aware of our heritage having been founded uh, on the site of the Festival of Britain, which, uh, as well as being a 
sort of cultural event was a scientific event that was very much about anticipating the future just after the Second World War. What are the developments human, humanity is working towards over the decades to come? In that same spirit, it feels like we need to be asking questions now about what culture is going to look like in relationship to technology in the 21st century and artificial intelligence for me is one of the standout areas where that's going to matter as we get closer to uh, points like you say with Alexa where we can actually have interactions with human-made intelligences whether we quite call them full intelligences at this stage is a matter for discussion Um, but as we get closer to points where machines may well pass aspects or indeed the whole of the famous Turing test, we've really got to be asking these questions about where we stand and what the status of these entities is. And presumably it's a bit of a weird one for you because it goes across pretty much every department at the South Bank Centre. I mean, you work with performance and dance, but it's in no way exclusively limited. It might as well be, you know, music, visual arts, all these things are being affected by... AI, have you kind of taken it upon yourself to be the the pioneer for the robots at the South Bank Centre? Are you having lots of conversations with other people? I'd like to make it very clear at this stage that I do not work for the robots and I never have worked for the robots. Not at all. I mean, it's certainly something I have a personal interest in and have explored with programmes. You know, the relationship between science and art and the philosophical questions that poses is something I've explored in the programmes I've done here and in previous roles too. Uh, But of course, I'm excited by other areas of exploration in this field of inquiry too. I do think there is something particularly pertinent pertinent about it in the territory of performance though. Uh, Performance is in so many ways the art of shared space and classically one thinks of that in, in shared physical space but actually so much of these questions about technology are the ways we share space and time uh, with these entities and each other through these mechanisms, it feels that performance is actually a very natural medium to be addressing these questions. And before we hear from Thomas, you get the tricky job of giving a very brief overview of what Go is as a game and how it works. (laughs) Because I do think it's probably important. I mean, really, we're talking brief outlines there. Chess, but different to chess. Um, It's a board game. Give the 30-second summary of the most complex game known to humanity. Okay, well, it's actually a very simple game in many respects. The two players take part by putting down black and white pieces, seeking to occupy as much of the playing area as possible and blocking each other's moves and removing pieces from the other player. So in in principle, the game is extremely simple, much more simple than chess. But this simplicity actually has an almost infinite scope for variation. And I believe the statistic is there are more possible moves in a game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. And the YouTube video that I watched trying desperately yesterday to understand how it worked was from 2010 and the kind of takeaway at the end of the YouTube video was this is the game where machines don't seem able to beat humans and that video is slightly out of date because as we're going to hear that's exactly what Thomas's performance is all about. It's funny because uh, yeah, the other day uh, Thomas, so the scientist who I'm gonna be on stage with, he said like it's so crazy. You you artists you have no like framework. Scientists they work according to a method which is very strict and logical. Making a theater play there are no real like strict rules. You just make it on the go and you yeah, use your intuition or imagination or whatever. 
it's a very interesting interesting process also the what performing is like if he is a scientist just giving a lecture in some university he's also performing in a way but this is a different kind of performing because you're on the stage and you have this kind of yeah you can work with this fourth wall or not uh, you can you can um, let's say transform this information you have into a scene into a dialogue you have images that don't necessarily communicate a scientific problem or fact but which are more evocative or poetic so yeah, it's really this kind of on the boundaries between science and arts I hope to share the feeling I had when I saw Move 37 wonder, awe, a feeling of what the fuck So Rupert, you're going to have to help me to understand what this performance is going to look like. In my mind, we've got the beautifully soft-spoken Thomas on stage with his scientific friends delivering kind of like a PowerPoint presentation side by side, presuming there's a bit more to it than that. Uh, there is. You say scientific friend. I should note that Thomas Hertog is a really major scientist in his own right. He co-authored Stephen Hawking's last paper, and he's a, a really leading quantum physicist. And so there's a really interesting link-up between the creative and imaginative approach. You will have the actor and the prestigious scientist on stage together, and it will start with, you know, you reference PowerPoint, it will start with a performance lecture-type quality direct information conveyance on a, on a fascinating topic but it's going to slide uh, and I can't say exactly how it's going to slide because you know that's part of the mystery of the work but I know Thomas Knight Thomas actor yeah well, I should, maker, I should note at this point this is a really unfortunate episode for two people to be called Thomas when they both got hard to pronounce their names that's very true yeah um, in discussing making the artwork with me Thomas and I have both been enthused by ideas of the eerie and the weird. So, yeah, this sense of mystery evoked by artificial intelligence is something that I know is going to come very prominently to the fore in the second half. I think it's fair to say things will start degenerating slightly from the traditional performance lecture format and then probably veer off entirely into surprising territory. First of all, what is, what is imagination and what is uh, intuition? This alpha go beat us in intuition, so to speak. So this intuition and imagination, which for us is something, it's not very graspable. It's like consciousness. What is it? How do you define it? It's very difficult to define. But still, we consider it as something that's exclusively human, that what separates us from all the other species, so to speak. So what, this, what these algorithms are, are in a way pointing to is that something like intuition or imagination is maybe not some kind of divine human trait, but is a result of a complexity of, in this case, neural nets and algorithms, and it emerges from that. So you could say it puts mankind on the spot. I feel from my reading like there are two different approaches that artists or creators in general take to working with AI. One is that AI is merely an extension of the creativity of its maker. So the idea that 
it's just a computer, it can do interesting things, but essentially it's like feeding off the information that you put in, so you are the creative force. And then the other approach, which seems to be what Thomas is more leaning towards, is kind of more radical because what he's saying is that AI in itself can have an imagination that goes beyond the mind of its creator. Does that distinction make sense? I think it does, yeah, and I think that maps onto our ongoing questions about the role AI is going to play in our lives. You know, we are already using artificial intelligences to aid us, have been for some time, but more and more so now. And there is a real question as, as to whether AI will ever transcend the frameworks we create for it. It may never do so. But at the same time, as artificial intelligence takes leaps and bounds forward, and Thomas's example is a fascinating one because key to the success of the artificial intelligence that won these go matches against the world champion was its ability to teach itself and it got better still when it was able to teach itself based on its own systems as opposed to a study of all human games on record previously played. So the weak link in that sense is the human element as opposed to the artificial intelligence element. Thomas has made his show without artificial intelligence. It's, it's traditional theatre making, really. He's in the room. But the questions he's asking about where this is going are, as you say, very radical. And they're about, you know, what the fuck? What might happen? It, it could transform our understanding of everything. This is just the beginning. We've seen nothing yet. Does it scare me? I mean, it's an age-old fear. It's a fear that we have had for, for millions of years. I mean, the, the story of Gollum, for example, which is a, an old Jewish story about a, a rabbi creating a creature out of mud, and then it kind of backlashes on him. Is you know, you have the Frankenstein story, you have the Terminator story, which then comes in. So there is, I think, some fear that is in our hardware, a fear to create something. Uh, that will take over, of which we, we will lose control. And I think AI really injects into that fear. Doing research for this project and looking into the evolution or, say, revolution of artificial intelligence, the only thing you can make out of it is that it is completely impossible to make predictions. What will happen will vastly exceed my imaginative power. It's not a scary clip, but there is something slightly menacing about what Thomas is saying here. And it makes me think about the specific relationships that artists have with artificial intelligence. Because he's not saying that he thinks AI is, you know, wonderful and is going to save humanity. It seems that a large part of what attracts him to it is the absolute terror and unknowability of it in the same way that an artist might be interested in making work about, you know, God or death. I suppose, do you think that in a way, a lot of artists are less interested in AI as a tool for their work than they're interested in it as a terrifying force that therefore offers up kind of interesting questions for creative exploration? I do think it's a source of fascination and, and a bit of fear for artists, yes. The excellent sci-fi author Ian M. Banks in his book The Algebraist, uh, he, he imagines a galactic far future where artificial intelligence is officially illegal because of the cataclysmic galactic wars it led to. So in quite sort of 
concrete, imaginative ways. I know people or artists are inspired by what the the risks are. But also, I think if we think generally over art history, you know, in almost all cultures of representation, artists have striven to make images of the unknowable, whether it's God or death or time. And artificial intelligence seems to be opening up a great new vista into what may be, what may be unknown around us. And so it makes sense to me that artists are fascinated by that and want to try and grasp it in whatever way seems possible. So the visual arts are probably the area of culture in which the public has become most aware of artificial intelligence. In October last year, there were headlines around the world when Christie's Auction House in London conducted a sale that brought AI onto the world's auction scene. The picture that was sold, which they thought would fetch between $7,000 and $10,000, actually sold for almost half a million. Whether it's worth that depends on how you assign value to these things. In terms of what it looks like, it's a kind of very blurry, unfinished looking old master painting in a gilded frame and it was created by running 15,000 portraits from I think the 14th century to the 20th century through a machine and the algorithm created this portrait that was kind of the the sum of all of them but also in some way something more than that this is an entirely original work it also looks if you're trying to picture it a bit like a francis bacon painting and this is actually the case with a lot of paintings that are created by ai there's something about them this kind of semi blurry slightly distorted slightly otherworldly look that is um what francis bacon spent you know 50 years of his life trying to capture and computers do it in a couple of minutes. A painting like that raises a couple of interesting questions. One of them is a larger theme of bias in artificial intelligence. So it's no surprise that the painting that was auctioned at Christie's was of a white middle-aged looking man because all the portraits that they ran through the machine were also mainly of white middle-aged men. And there's a danger that we think robots are in some way neutral, but over the last couple of years there's been a huge amount of conversation, very necessary conversation, about how they're only as neutral as the information that we put into them is. The other interesting thing that the painting caused people to question was what creativity is exactly, because this wasn't a painting made by a particular artist who was using AI to emphasise their own style or to experiment with new things. This was a painting which, if you had the technology, you could go onto Wikipedia and trawl through 50,000 pictures of boats or 50,000 pictures of trees and you could create a masterpiece very similar to this one. So I'm Patrick Tresset. I'm an artist based in Brussels for a long time. I was based in London. But so my artistic practice follows two main paths. So the exhibition of robots as part of installation, performative installation, if you want, in a contemporary art context and also the use of computational systems and robots to produce series of drawings, paintings, and so on and so forth. So I am still a drawing practitioner, but I don't touch pen or brushes anymore. I spoke to an artist for whom AI really is a creative tool. Patrick Tresser used to be a conventional pen and paper style portrait artist. At a certain point, he felt the limits of his creativity had been reached. 
and instead of painting by hand, he designed an incredibly complicated robot arm and a camera. The camera scans the face of the sitter and then draws a portrait in biro of their likeness in the style that Patrick himself used before he stopped drawing. So one of the really uncanny things about it is that these pictures aren't just of a machine style, these pictures are directly influenced and infused with Patrick's own approach to drawing. At some point in my drawing practice or even painting practice, I lost my way, I reached a dead end in a certain way. I was trying to be in the drawing as spontaneous as possible, but I couldn't reach that anymore because I was always at some point aware of what I was doing, and so that broke the, the spontaneity. And in a certain way, using computational system or robots to, to produce work, it's easier to be fully spontaneous because I don't even touch the paint. So when the robots are started, I can't influence what they are doing. And so they go to the end. So in a certain way, I can't be more spontaneous than that. It's only after I exhibited the first robot, when I saw the reaction of people, there is something very strange with robots because people believe that it's true. Robots are only machines, they don't have any conscience or awareness or agency. I mean, real agency. They can be autonomous, but still, it's not true. When you use a, a robot, the drawing is really the result of the pen in movement on the paper over time, and that can be seen in the drawing. I mean, especially with the, with the robots I use or have developed, where the Gesturality in a certain way is important. I like yes, to, to have these, these robots uh, appearing as spontaneous as possible and doing very, in a certain way, messy drawings. So is what is Patrick talking about here? Well, one of the interesting things that came out in the interview is the fact that unlike the art at Christie's, Patrick really does see the robot who is making his work as something kind of spontaneous, something creative, Something which is doing something new in a way, rather than just regurgitating old patterns via information that it's been fed. It's also interesting that the hand of the artist is still very present, in that the robot itself is a sort of art exhibition. If you were sitting for a portrait for one of Patrick's robots, it would look like it was looking at you. The camera would kind of move up and down and to the sides as if it was observing you as a human would while they were sketching. The way it draws, it kind of moves the pen to the eyes first and then draws the outline of the face. And Patrick has said that all of this is entirely unnecessary. It's a performance in itself. So he's present as the artist, not just in that he designed the machine and got it to copy his drawing style, but also because he has imbued this computer and this system of AI with intentionally human characteristics to make it a more disconcerting experience for viewers. I never know what the robots are going to do and the drawing is always a surprise for me. So, do robots dream of electric masterpieces? I'll leave you with that question. Thanks to Rupert for joining me this week and thanks to Thomas and Patrick for talking to me. That's all for this week's episode. You can hear more of what goes on at the Southbank Centre in our books podcast. The latest episode features extracts from Roxane Gay's Evening Here, which I was in the audience for and enjoyed hugely, as well as an in-depth talk about women writers, the pain of being honest and the only way is Essex. Essex.